All right, if you have your Bible, turn to Psalm 145. Imagine that. (laughs) This morning we are going to look at the attribute of God's holiness. J.C. Ryle, who is bishop of the Anglican Church of England, probably the last of the great Puritan-like preachers, wrote a book in 1877 entitled Holiness. The book is very popular today, and its message seems to be more applicable today than it was in the day that the book was written. And Ryle wrote the book because there were unbiblical trends that began to infiltrate the church and to move it away from biblical holiness. At that time, there was a movement that was starting to infect the church. It was called the perfectionist movement. A movement that supposedly said you could achieve perfection while living here on earth in the flesh. That you could somehow um, cease from ever sinning again. That you would grow in holiness until you just plateaued and you became holy like God. You have probably heard the phrase, let go and let God. Well, it comes from the perfectionist movement, also called the holiness movement. It was the standard doctrine of Keswick and Wesleyan theology. And they just taught that there was a time in your life where you kind of let go and let God and totally surrendered, kind of had one incredible moment of surrender, which was almost like, you know, being saved again. And all of a sudden you would just enter into a state of perfect, unflinching, unwavering obedience. And it fooled people into thinking that the victorious life of a believer was attained through passive rather than active pursuits. The balance between God's work in us and our responsibility to obey was tilted all the way to God's side. This left Christians thinking they could become more Christ-like by merely letting go and relaxing in the Lord and letting God do what he was going to do. Christians started to believe that holiness was attained by merely letting go and letting God do it all. And this unbalanced view of sanctification swept the globe. It swept the globe and soon infected the large majority of churches. And as a consequence, the holiness movement made people feel empty and far from God. Imagine that. They quit trying to obey. They quit trying to strive for holiness. And so they weren't holiness. They were in sin. And people in sin always feel far away from God, and rightly so. And so they felt far away from God. And they didn't know what to do. Because it was leaving them empty. Feeling estranged from God. And so it led them to seek emotional forms of worship. People came to church and it just seemed dead. 
They were in their sins. They were taught that they didn't have to do anything, let go and let God. They weren't being delivered from those sins they were entangled in. They felt far from God, and so they decided, we need to change things. We need to get excited. We need to get people pumped up. We need to people experience the true Christian life. And then this holiness movement led into Pentecostalism, which led into the charismatic movement, which led to the third wave movement, which led to the seeker-sensitive and church growth movements, which are worldwide today. And all of these movements downplayed doctrine, they downplayed biblical exposition and obedience, and instead focused on emotions and feelings and sensual forms of worship. Then people begin to think that if they came to church and somebody got up front and got them frothed up into some emotional frenzy, into some feel-good feeling, then they left church that they had, you know, worshipped God in holiness, The church, in an effort to reach unbelievers, began to adapt this same philosophy to evangelism, appealing to men's feelings and emotions and desires, thinking that if they could appeal to men's lusts and capture their lusts and drag them into the church by their lusts, they could maybe steer them to Christ by presenting to them a very weak and um, downplayed and truncated form of the gospel. It wouldn't mention sin or wrath or judgment that might scare them away. We have to keep them feeling good, as if feeling good was actually the highest form of holiness. There's a problem with this approach. First, it is not taught in the Bible. And secondly, it feeds men's lusts, which the Bible says we are to put to death. Not encourage. And Ryle, in 1877 is writing about this before the charismatic movement, before the charis- uh, Pentecostal movement, before the third wave movement, before the seeker-sensitive movement. And this is what he says in the introduction to his book, Holiness. Quote, There is an incessant craving after any teaching which is sensational and exciting and rousing to the feelings. There is an unhealthy appetite for a sort of spasmodic, hysterical Christianity. The religious life of many is little better than spiritual dram drinking or drunkenness. And the meek and quiet spirit which Peter commends is clean forgotten, 1 Peter 3, 4. Crowds and crying and hot rooms and high-flown singing and an incessant rousing of the emotions are the only things which many care for. Inability to distinguish the differences in doctrine is spreading far and wide. And so long as the preacher is clever and earnest, hundreds seem to think it must be all right. And call you dreadfully narrow and uncharitable if you hint that he is unsound. End quote. What is the cure for this? Well, I'll tell you, it's not trying harder to feed men's lusts. It's not trying to use more extra biblical techniques to bring people in the church. It's not mimicking the world's music or the world's entertainment. It's not altering the gospel so that sin, judgment, and wrath are removed. No, the cure is to go back to the Word of God and to start at the very fountainhead of holiness, which is God Himself. It's to look at God, to get a clearer picture of God, to understand who God is. And then to do what that holy God says we must do to be like him. So if you have your Bible, please look at Psalm 145. 
as we read through this, I want you to look for God's holiness. And what's interesting here is I did a search of the word holy and holiness And I found out that it only appears once from Psalms 138 through Psalm 150, and it's in this verse. See if you can see it as I read. David writes, I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and highly to be praised, his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty, and on your wonderful works I will meditate. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts, and I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness, and I will shout joyfully of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord sustains all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, kind in all his deeds. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and save them. The Lord keeps all who love him, but the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. Right there at the very end. He begins the psalm with God as king and ends the psalm with God as holy. And we have two realities of holiness taught to us in this last verse. Your God is holy, and your God wants you to live your life in light of his holiness. Let's look at each of these. Look at verse 21. Notice after he says that we are to bless God because of his holy name. We'll get back to the blessing part in a minute. Let's look at this phrase, holy name. What is a name anyways? You know, what, what is it when we pray in Jesus' name? What does that mean? What is a name? Well, a name is something that represents who we are, what we are. For instance, if the police show up to your house and they bang on the door and say, Open up! In the name of the police! What are they saying? They're saying, Open up! In everything that the police, the name police represents, the authority, the power that has been granted to them, everything they are as police, that is the name of the police. And when we pray in Jesus' name, what are we praying in? In everything Jesus is, who he is, what he has done, everything that relates to Jesus, that is his name. And here are texts, and in many other places in Scripture, it tells us to bless his holy name. What does that tell us? It tells us that 
everything God is, everything, every attribute, every part of God, whatever constitutes God is holy. He has a holy name. We use the term holy quite a bit as Christians, you talk to Christians and they're talking about holy this and holy that and singing songs about God's holiness. And we know that term and often it's just a very cliche type term. Oh yeah, we need to be holy. And we might even know the the parallel term for that sanctification, which is just a synonym. Sanctification means to be set apart and so does holy. The Hebrew word for holy describes that which is sanctified, hollow, dedicated, um, uh, brought apart from, set apart from, separated from, and dedicated to God. The real basic concept in the word holiness, if you don't, if you just forget the God part and you just say, what is the basic concept, is to separate something or withdraw something from something else and to something else or someone else. It is a separation from and to. You know, a lot of us have cell phones. I have a cell phone. Hopefully yours isn't on right now. And if it goes off, you will hear from me. I try and fit that into my sermon when I can. But you know, I never never get the urge to take my cell phone out and pound nails with it. I never get the urge when I need to dig a hole or a ditch to take my cell phone out and see if I could scratch a hole. When I need to drill a hole in something, I don't take out my cell phone. I mean, it's got a pointed antenna, but it's not that sharp. And I don't use it to shave with. I don't use it for a lot of things. Why? Because my cell phone is dedicated, separated for the purpose of sending and receiving calls. And that's all. That is its purpose. As a believer, you are a holy one. I don't know if you know this, but the word saint, hagias, means holy one. And that is why God calls you to be holy. Because that is what you are. You have been separated from sin and Satan and from this world for the purpose of being Holy, like God is holy. But when you talk about God, God is holy in two radically different ways. The first way, which is less commonly known, is his majestic holiness. When you study the holiness of God, God has what is called a majestic holiness. Think about God in his infinitude, how he is infinite, how he is eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing, all of those attributes that speak of his transcendence, that everything he is is to an infinite degree. And so because of that, he is way, way different than his creations, his creatures. He is an infinite degree away from us. And because of that, he is separated from us, which makes him holy. Holy, because he is different than his creation. That is one way that holiness is used. For instance, Exodus 15.11 says, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? Exodus 15.11 focuses on God being different Not like any of the other gods. Majestic in holiness. He is awesome and praises. He's working wonders. He does things that no one else can do. Which makes him holy. 
When you look at the Old Testament, you see in Psalm 11:13 that God's way is holy. In Psalm 89:39, God swears in his holiness. In Isaiah 52:10, God speaks of bearing his holy arms, speaking of his strength. Everything God is is holy, so it infuses all of the attributes of God. It permeates all of God's attributes because all of his attributes are so radically different, infinitely so, from his creation. It separates him from us to an infinite degree. But secondly, the second definition, which most of us are probably more familiar with, is the idea of holiness which is to be separate from sin and evil. Sin and evil. It is the perfection of God's moral purity. The idea that God is totally set apart from sin altogether. James 1.13 tells us that God is so holy that God can't even be tempted by evil. Now, James is not saying that no one could appeal to God to sin. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying Satan couldn't ask God to contradict his nature or do something evil. That's not what it's saying. What it's saying is, is because God is infinitely holy and perfectly holy, that no appeal works on him. He, he never desires to do evil. He never thinks of doing evil, nor could he do evil, because it would be impossible for him to be evil because he is infinitely holy. Theologians have a term for this. It is called being impeccable. Like Jesus, the scriptures say he was both God and man. And being man in the flesh, he was human. And so Satan tempted him. But the scriptures say he was tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin. Why? Because he was the holy one. He was impeccable. He could not sin. He would not sin. There was no possibility of sin in him. It would be a contradiction of his divine nature. I mean, think about how likely it would be for a woodpecker to go up to a stainless steel pole and drill a hole in it. That woodpecker could peck until its beak fell off. It would never drill a hole in a stainless steel pole. That stainless steel pole to the woodpecker would be impeccable. I thought that was good. But that's how it is with God, isn't it? Try all you want, work all you want, strive all you want, and you cannot penetrate God with any sin or any evil. He is impeccable, beyond sinning. And all through the Bible, you see this. All the way through the Bible, you see God is presented as holy. And one of the interesting places where we see this is even in in things that are simple. For instance, in Leviticus chapter 11... Is the spot where um, uh, we see God's holiness contrasted with dietary laws. The whole theme of Leviticus is the holiness of God. God paints a worship system. He creates a worship system and paints a picture of himself of being very holy and the people being very sinful, but then giving the people a means by which they can approach him. And one of those things they had to do is to abstain from things that are unclean. Now let me just read verses 43 and 45 of Leviticus 11. And as I read this, I want you to take note of the motivations and reasons behind them abstaining from certain things. 
Verse 43 of Leviticus 11 says, Do not render yourselves detestable through any of the swarming things that swarm. And you shall not make yourselves unclean with them, so that you become unclean. Notice there is a defiling. You participate in what is unclean, you become unclean. Verse 44, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourself, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. Notice the motivation. You consecrate yourself, which means you remove yourself from these unclean things and dedicate yourself to me. Why? Because I'm holy. You be holy. And this is how to do it. He goes on to say, You shall not make... Yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm in the earth. For I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. What does it mean to have God be your God? Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. Notice in those few verses there, the motivation for holiness is a correct understanding of God who is holy. To understand that when God makes a command, he makes it in holiness so that his people would submit to it and separate themselves from something unto him. God is holy and separate from all sin. So much so that 1 John 1.5 says that in him there is no darkness at all. None. Zero. There's no darkness in God. So, when you look in the scriptures, you will encounter majestic holiness, deeds of God, works of God, attributes of God, which place him so far away from anything else, he's incomparable, which makes him separate, holy. And then you also see God as being isolated, separated from sin to every degree. He never thinks evil, never does evil, never craves evil, is not tempted by evil. And that makes him perfect in moral purity. No sin whatsoever. When you read through the Old Testament, it's pretty interesting to look up the word holy and and righteous, you know, tzaddik and kodesh. And you look at all these different Hebrew words. You go through there and you find out that a lot of things are made holy or are holy unto the Lord. I found in their men, like the Levites who were to be Holy unto God. Food, you know, like the bread of the presence or vessels or anointing oil or incense or gifts or days or offerings, God's ways, mountains, special places, clothing, anything, anything that is to be taken from normal, everyday, worldly use, separated from that and dedicated to the Lord is to be holy. To the Lord. And guess what? That's you. You, as a believer, are called to be a holy one. Which means you are to be separated from the world unto God. In all you do and in all you think. Why? Because God is the Holy One, a term used of God 60 times in the Bible. He is the Holy One. So, we have a Holy God that is clear from the Bible. 
He is the Holy Father, John 17, the Righteous One, speaking of Christ. He is the Holy One of God. The Holy Spirit is holy, of course. So we serve this holy God. So how does God want you and me to live because he is holy? Well, we see a couple things in verse 21 of Psalm 145. Here we have, my mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. There are two verbs here, will speak, will bless. And guess what? Just like every other attribute we've encountered in the psalm, the application is speak of it and bless God because of it. Every other one, all the way through the psalm, it's speak, it's tell, it's bless, praise. All of these terms are our response to God who is holy. That's one of the ways you need to live. And what's interesting about these two verb tenses, they are intensive. That means they speak of a process that isn't completed, but should be continuing, and that it should be done with intensity. Intensity. You might translate this literally, my mouth will continually continue to intensely speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh will continue to intensely bless his name forever and ever. It is a call to just pour out with energy, intensity, fervor, zeal, praise to God. I don't know about you, but look at your life last week. Take all the times you praised God, thanked God, blessed God last week. Think about it. Was there much time apart from the worship service here? Is your life characterized by continually praising and thanking God? That's what we're called to do here. All the way through the whole psalm. And here, to bless God and His holy name forever and ever. Not only will you be doing it here in this life, but you will be doing it for all eternity, forever and ever. And it may seem odd to you that you could bless God. Usually we think of God blessing us, right? I remember one time talking to somebody. I said, you know, you need to, you need to walk with the Lord. You need to bless God with your life. And the person said to me, well, we can't bless God. I thought, whoa, you've never read the Psalms. It's all the way through there. Almost every Psalm says that. I will bless you. Men shall bless you. It's all the way through here multiple times. Your life is to be a blessing to God. You ask yourself, well, how do I bless God? By abstaining from sin. That's how you bless God. It's the only way you can bless God. The only way you can be a blessing to God is to walk before him in obedience. Proverbs 15.8 reminds us, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. But the prayer of the upright is his delight. Think about that next time you pray. You have some little secret sin in your life. You have some little stubborn area of unrepentance in your life. You have some area that you aren't giving over to the Lord. When you pray to God, it's an abomination. Think, are you sure that says that? Well, here's Proverbs 28, 9. He who turns away his ear from listening to the law, even his prayer, is an abomination. On the testimony of two witnesses. Jesus told the woman at the well in John 4, 24, those who worship God must worship him in spirit and truth. You, not just in a whole bunch of zeal, not just in formal legalism, just follow the letter, but from your heart, you are to desire and want to and strive to obey God in truth 
And that is acceptable worship, which means there isn't any other worship outside that category which is acceptable to God. Our only response to a holy God is to be holy as he is holy, to separate ourselves from sin, and to walk according to his truth. And it all starts with you understanding who you are and who God is. Turn to Isaiah 6. Isaiah chapter 6, familiar text to many of us. This is Isaiah's great vision of the holiness of God. It's parallel to Revelation 14, or Revelation 4.8, where the same kind of vision is given to John. But Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah in this vision gets a glimpse of the Holy One of Israel. And what is interesting about this text is that it shows us the normal and proper response to even a very godly man like Isaiah, who was a very godly man, a very faithful prophet, a response of somebody when they really get a clear vision, a clear glimpse of the holiness of God. John Feinberg in his Theology of God called No One Like Him has said that the only right response to the majestic and moral holiness of God is the same response that Isaiah had in Isaiah 6.5. After Isaiah saw the angels around the throne of God saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. His response in verse 5 was, Woe is me, for I am ruined Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When Isaiah was confronted with the holiness of God, when he saw God's holiness, both his majestic holiness and his moral purity, he just crumbled. He crumbled. Because compared to the infinite whiteness and brightness of God's moral holiness, he looked like a big black spot on there. And all he could think about is, I'm ruined. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. A.W. Tozer commenting on Isaiah's response to God's holiness said, quote, The sudden realization of his personal depravity came like a stroke from heaven upon the trembling heart of Isaiah as the, um, as the moment when he has his revolutionary visit, vision of holiness of God. His pain-filled cry expresses the feeling of every man who has discovered himself under his disguises and has been confronted with an inward sight of the holy whiteness of God. And then he says here, such an experience cannot be but emotionally violent. You know, when you see God, when you see his holiness, you can't help but crumble under the weight of his moral perfection and majesty. Stephen Charnock in his work, The Existence and Attributes of God, notes that nowhere in the Bible do you find any other attribute of God lauded like his holiness. He says, where do you find any other attribute trembled in the praises of it? As in Isaiah 6, 3, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. In Revelation 4, 8, the four beasts day and night do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. His power or sovereignty as the Lord of hosts is but mentioned once. 
but with an eternal repetition of his holiness. Do you hear in any angelic song any other perfection of divine nature thrice repeated? Where do we read of the cry, eternal, 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 or faithful, faithful, faithful is the Lord God of hosts? Whatsoever other attribute is left out, this God would have his holiness to fill the mouths of angels and blessed spirits forever in heaven, end quote. That is something to think about. God is so proud of his holiness, so concerned with his holiness, so wanting to remind creatures that he has created of his holiness that he assigns angels to declare it night and day forever and ever unlike any other attribute miller j erickson in his systematic theology said quote when one measures one's holiness not against the standard of oneself or of other humans, but against God, the need for a complete change of moral and spiritual condition becomes apparent. This is what happens in salvation, isn't it? I mean, if you came to Christ later on in life, and you got to the place where you finally understood you were a sinner, it was because you saw the holiness of God. You begin to realize that God's big. God's great, God's majestic. And all of a sudden, the intensity of your sin is just brought to light. And you realize, I am a sinner, I need Christ, I need forgiveness, I need a Savior. That is a glimpse of God's holiness. And we don't get a glimpse of holiness when we compare ourselves with other people, which is what we like to do. You confront somebody about their sin, and the first thing they say is, well, you know, I mean, what about... And then they talk about somebody else. Or, yeah, well, at least I'm better than... Well, yeah, they never put God in there. They never say, well, at least I'm better than Jesus. The standard is not other sin-cursed fallen men. It's God. He is the standard. And there is so much confusion in the church today about holiness that people in many churches just have ceased to pursue holiness. It's just a concept, a Christian term of jargon that is thrown out. They know nothing of pursuing God's holiness. They don't even know what it means. They have so let go and let God that there's, they're gone. There's nothing left. They're just spiritually dead. And if you are living in sin, even as a believer, even though you are justified before God, even though you have forgiveness in Christ, even though you will get to heaven and you will see it in the heavenly places, if you are in sin, God does not hear your prayers. He will not accept your worship. But Jack, what if I'm living 95% right with God? Nope. What if I'm 98% right with God? No. What if I'm 99.99% right with God, but I just have this one favorite sin I'm hiding in my heart and I won't let go of? Nothing matters for the glory of God. We need to realize that being a Christian and living for God is not living for our favorite sin plus God. We either come to God, all of us, with all of our sins confessed, or our prayers and our worship and everything we do is unacceptable. Thomas Watson reminds us that the only thing that lets the world know that we are Christians is holiness. He says, quote, holiness is the only thing that distinguishes us from the reprobate part of the world. 
As a nobleman has a distinguished, is distinguished from others by a star, as a virtuous woman is distinguished from a harlot by her chastity, so holiness distinguishes us between the two seeds. All that are of God have Christ for their captain, and holiness is the white crown they wear. If you don't have God's holiness in your life, you have no way to impact the world. The church today has been corrupted by the errors of the perfectionist movement, thinking that we can just let go and let God. And part of this is a misunderstanding. It is a partial truth that people have clung to. People go to the scriptures and they go, well, salvation isn't by works, it's by grace. And they say, true, it's true. And yet, you know, we are, when we are saved in Christ, we have his righteousness applied to us, his holiness applied to us, and we are perfectly complete in God's sight in Christ. True. And we are justified all at once before Christ. True. True. But, that's not all the Bible says. We must never confuse justification with the process of sanctification taught in the Word of God. Practically, in our everyday lives, are we still sinners? Of course. Do you ever sin? You don't even need to answer the question. I know you're a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. I don't even need to know you, and I know you're a sinner. 1 John 1.8 says, if we say we have no sin, we're a liar and the truth is not in us. We deceive ourselves. We're sinners. And so God in Christ, yes, has made us holy. God in Christ has made us perfect. And we will stand before God, blameless with great joy, having all of our sins washed away, blotted out, free from the power of sin and the presence of sin, but not right now. Sin's sin's still here. Sin's still in our life. And though we are freed from its power, we are not freed from its presence. And oftentimes we rebel against God. And that is why God wants us to pursue holiness. To run hard after holiness. Sure, there is perfection in Christ, but don't confuse our position in Christ with our everyday life right now here on earth. Sanctification means you setting your life apart from sin. What that means is that you take your resources God has given you as a believer and you apply them, trusting in God, to separate yourself from sin, from worldliness. You labor, work, Discipline yourself to do this. It's hard work. Sanctification is a process that constantly is relying on God's gracious resources to pursue what God wants you to do. And don't be hoodwinked into thinking that personal sanctification just happens automatically by letting go and letting God. It doesn't. That's how carnality happens. You see, in the reaction of many, when you begin to speak of sanctification, when you begin to point out their sins, then they label you a legalist. Say, hey, you know, you are a legalist. I mean, you know, what's all this obeying stuff? You know, what's this, uh, what's this all? You must do this and you must do that stuff. Well, you must do it because God says you have to. 
I mean, just read your Bible. I tell you, as God's messenger, you must obey every command in the Word of God that is directed at you. You have no option as a believer. You have to do it. That's not being a legalist. That's being a Christian. Listen, are all the commands in the Bible and in the letters to the churches directed at you or God? Does God command himself to obey? Does God command himself to flee immorality, to abstain from adultery, to not be drunk, to not steal, to not covet? Does God tell himself that? Of course not. He tells you that. Because every command is directed at you and your will. And what's great about it is God doesn't just save us and then say, okay, I've saved you now. You're on your own in the power of the flesh. No, he gives us everything we need to walk before him in perfect holiness. No temptation ever overcomes us, but God is always faithful who never allows us to be tempted beyond what we are able. So if you ever sin, you know whose fault it is. It's not God's fault. It's not a lack of resources. It's your fault. It's my fault. And you say to yourself, well... Jack, I mean, are you sure the scriptures teach that, you know, I mean, we have to do this? Well, let me just read you a few verses. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Now listen to the commands in this verse. Wash yourself. Make yourself clean. Remove evil from your deeds. Remove evil from your sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Ten commands in two verses. Those aren't directed at God. Those are directed at God's people. You say, oh yeah, but that was the Old Testament. Okay, Matthew 5, 48. You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Perfect means perfect. You're thinking, well, Jack, that's 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 kind of a high standard. It's not kind of. It's a high standard. It's the highest standard. You are called to be like God who is holy. Say, well, Jack, that was, that was, you know, that was the Old Testament. Jesus hadn't died yet. Okay, 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Did you hear that? You are to cleanse yourself from all defilement of the flesh and you are to perfect holiness in your life because God commands you to do so. Listen to what Titus 2, 11 through 14 says. Speaking of why God saved us, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Okay, now that we're saved, then what? Deny, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and peering of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds." That's what you're to be doing. Hebrews 12, 14, pursue peace with all men. You do it. Pursue peace with all men. And what else are you to pursue? The sanctification or holiness without which no one will see the Lord. James 4, 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. That's directed at you. 
First Peter 1, 14 through 16, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the lusts which were yours in your ignorance. A call to be holy, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves. How much? In all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Quoting Leviticus 19.2, nothing has changed. This whole idea that you just kind of let go and let God is a farce. It's a lie. It's not true. Salvation is by grace through faith unto works. You are saved to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2.10 Being a Christian is not being passive. It is being active. It is struggling. It is a war. It is a fight. It is a battle. It is to sacrifice our pleasures, sacrifice our lusts, sacrifice our time, sacrifice whatever needs to be sacrificed for holiness. So we can give God glory because if we're in sin, we cannot give God glory. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 11 says, I labored more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. Paul says the same thing in Colossians 1.29. For this purpose I labor, striving, agonizing, hurting myself according to the power which mightily works within me. And then some people say, well, Jack, who is it? I mean, is God doing it or is Paul doing it? Yes, is the answer. It's Paul using God's resources to obey him. That's what sanctification is. It's true, you can be fleshly. It's true, you can say, well, I'm going to be perfect on my own power. I'm not going to pray. I'm not going to trust God. I'm not going to read his word. I'm not going to ask anybody else's help. I'm not going to fellowship with the saints. I'm not going to go to church, but I'm going to do it on my own. That would be ungodly. That would be sin upon sin. Sure, you're to use God's resources. That's why he has given them to you. But you use them, and then with all of your might, trusting in God, you pursue holiness. You perfect holiness in the fear of God. You cleanse yourself from all unrighteousness and all ungodliness and all wickedness. You have appliances at home. You have a mixer at home. You're going to make a cake. Well, put all the ingredients in the bowl, unplug it, and then turn the switch on. No mixing. No mixing. Why? There's no power. And that is what your life is like if you aren't tapped into God's resources. If you aren't walking in the Spirit, you're like a mixer that's unplugged. You're doing nothing for the glory of God. But if you have your sins confessed, if you are walking in obedience to God's Word, if you're trusting in God in prayer, man, you have power, baby. You have holiness cake. But if you have been duped into thinking that you need to let go and let God and not make any effort, you are unplugged and you are doing nothing for the glory of God. Even though it may appear to us, you're fine, upstanding Christians, nothing is acceptable to God that is not done in holiness. God wants you to work hard, trusting and relying on him And this is the main application of holiness. You be holy too because God is. Turn to Romans 12. This is a familiar familiar passage to many of us. 
We need to be reminded of it again. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Paul has just spent 11 chapters of doctrine talking about the sinfulness of man and salvation by grace and the transformation which happens and our security in Christ and the sovereignty of God and salvation. And he's gone through all of this and the relationship between the Jews and Gentiles and salvation. And then in chapter 12, verse 1, he starts getting into some serious application. Now notice what he says here in verse 1. I urge you. What is that? I mean, you know, sometimes you talk to people and you say, hey, could you do this for me? Other times you urge them. What does that mean? It's almost a begging, a pleading, a please, urging. What is he urging? Brethren, that's believers. By the mercies of God, what's that? I think he's referring to everything he said in the first 11 chapters. All the salvation and the grace and all the resources we have in Christ. All of that, by all of God's mercies, use those resources... What for? To present your bodies a living, that is, an all the time of your life, and holy sacrifice. Why? Because that's the only kind of sacrifice which is acceptable to God. That is your spiritual service of worship. If you aren't right now in every area of your life, holy, living, and on the altar to God... You're not an acceptable sacrifice. You say, what, Jack, I mean, how how exactly do you do that? Verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. Do you see that? You do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. You're asking yourself, but Jack... You know, okay, I'm convinced now. We need to do something. We need to obey God. We need to work hard. We need to strive. But when you talk about, you know, our resources in Christ and God's gracious provisions, what are you talking about? You may be thinking to yourself, you know, okay, I'm ready to plug in. How do I plug in? Well, let me tell you how you plug in. You plug in by walking in the Spirit. You say, okay, well, that helps. I don't know what that is either. What does this mean? Jot this down, Galatians 5, 16 through 23. Walking in the Spirit is pretty simple. It's to walk in obedience to God's will, which means this. It is to walk in such a way that you have all of your sins confessed, you have God's will from His Word in your mind, and you are pursuing that. That's all it means. When you have your sins confessed... When you are trusting in God and relying on His Word, you are walking in the Spirit. Why? Because the Spirit encourages you and motivates you and empowers you to do that. But He doesn't empower you to sin. Every time you turn away from God's Word, you are turning away from the Holy Spirit and from God Himself. And you are falling into sin. And so you need to stop Turn around, confess your sin, and pursue righteousness. That's all that means. And the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, who is always with every believer, will help you do that. But He won't help you sin. Secondly, ask yourself this. Are you faithful to read your Bible? Isn't this convicting? I mean, what question is so painful as, are you reading your Bible? You come into my office, you're going to get that question. Just so you know. 
If you are not reading your Bible, if you are not studying your Bible, if you're not memorizing the word of God, you will not be holy. Because holiness comes primarily through the word of God. If you are not in the word, then you are not walking in holiness. There is no holiness apart from the sanctifying work of the word of God. And the Holy Spirit which works through the word of God. In fact, I would say that your salvation is in question if you find yourself regularly not reading the Bible. It just reveals a heart that doesn't want to hear from God. How can you say you have a relationship with God and you love God, you just don't want to hear from him? Third, are you spending time with God in prayer? You're thinking, oh no, not this one. You know, there's times where we pray. You should have a times where you pray, where you're alone, where no one's around, where you can just talk with God. You know, do what Jesus said. When you pray, pray to your heavenly Father who is in secret, and your heavenly Father who hears in secret will reward you. You don't mean you need to be around people. I think a clear indicator, though, is during the week when you're driving, when you're at work, when you are sitting at home, when you get up in the morning, when you're going to sleep at night, are you talking to God? Do you find yourself talking to God, praying to God? Do you find that you have a prayer life? If you do, that's good. If you don't, bad. It may indicate that there is spiritual death there. How can you have a relationship with someone you never talk to? You can't. In prayer, you talk to God. You ask Him for help. You humble yourself. You confess your sins. You praise Him. Are you doing that? That's what you have to do. The scriptures command you to do that. That's what it means to be a Christian. Four, are you faithful to spend time with the saints? Whether it be here on Sunday morning or during the week, are you associating with the saints? You know, there's some people who don't like to spend time with people at church. And we know why. Because they're in sin. There's nothing more grievous than to know you're in sin to be around a bunch of people who aren't. And there are some people who, you know, I just don't like being around people, you know, they're kind of holier than thou, and, you know, they think they're so great, which really, when translated, means this, I'm in sin, and I don't want them to find out. And so they hide. They hide. If you don't want to be around God's people, then you are living in high-handed rebellion against God. Because the scriptures command you to fellowship with the saints, to be in discipleship relationships, to serve other people. You can't serve other people in the church if you aren't around them. Five, are you exercising your spiritual gift? Related to that one there, you've got to be around them, then you've got to exercise your gift. Think about this. Every single believer has a spiritual gift, right? Doesn't the Bible say we have all received a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good? Yeah. Read it in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12. We all have a spiritual gift. It's all been given to us for the common good, to edify other people. Are you using your spiritual gift? If you are not using your spiritual gift on a regular basis to serve the saints, you are in high-handed rebellion against God. What does that mean? That means whenever you pray, God does not hear you. That means all of your worship and all of your life is unacceptable to him. It's an abomination to him. Why? Because you might have 90% or 95% or 98% of your life right, but if you aren't serving in the church, you're in rebellion against God. And don't fool yourself into thinking you can be one of those 98% Christians. You're either 100% or you're in rebellion. 
And this is the kind of sloppy thinking that has crept into the church. We kind of do this balance thing. Well, gosh, you know, I'm, I'm giving out this and I've given out that. And, you know, I'm, I'm doing this, you know, okay. And, you know, I mean, I know I have this one spot in my life, but he can't expect me to be perfect. Be ye perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. He commands you to be that way. And you think, well, I can't. You're right. That's why you need God's grace. That's why you need God's resources. But if you are using his resources, you won't be holy. Six, are you supporting the church financially? Now, preachers love to preach on this. You ask yourself, what happens at the end of the year when tax season comes? Are you giving regularly, faithfully, according to the Lord has blessed you, sacrificially, anonymously, with a cheerful heart? If you aren't, you are in high-handed rebellion against God. He never hears your prayers if you're in high-handed rebellion. He doesn't accept any of your worship, none of it, ever. Your whole life is a farce because that one part of your life is in rebellion. Are you sharing your faith with others? Does Christ tell you to share the gospel? Of course he does. If you aren't living your life for Christ, if you aren't being a witness for Christ in your life by living a Christ-like life and by sharing the gospel, you're in rebellion. And I, you know, I talk to people about this and they say, well, gosh, Jack, you know, I'm just not very good. I, you know, I want to share my faith, but I'm just not very good. Hey, listen, when I started laying blocks at my house, I was lousy. The first blocks, they were all crooked, not all this mortar all gushing out the side. But I'm telling you, after 750 blocks, I can lay blocks. No, I don't want to lay your block. You don't get good at sharing your faith unless you share your faith. You can't become a good pottery expert unless you make pots. Share your faith. Well, what if I do it wrong? So you do it wrong. Next time you'll learn. You'll do it right. But really the problem is, is we love ourselves, we love our comfort, we don't want to be persecuted, and so we don't say anything because we don't want them to think bad of us. Get real. You can't be in rebellion against God and be holy. That's just all there is to it. Can't do it. And the church needs to come to grips with this. It's 100%. You must take up your cross and die to self and follow after Christ if you're going to be a holy and acceptable sacrifice to God. Don't fool yourself into thinking, well, I'm going to come to church and now I'm going to kind of just kind of be a, you know, 85% Christian. Doesn't work that way. God wants you to be holy in every area of your life to every degree. And he has given you every resource to do so. And you will fail. I will fail, do every day. But he gives you resources, doesn't he? He tells you what to do when you fail. What do you do? You turn from the sin. You confess it. You pursue righteousness. You fall again. You confess it. You pursue righteousness. You fall again. You confess it. You pursue righteousness. And it only has to happen until you die. (laughs) I mean, there are some days when you feel like just worn out because you've confessed so many times. Yeah, but that means you're pursuing God. What's the other alternative? Just fall into sin and just stay there and wallow in your misery and feel sorry for yourself? No, the righteous man falls seven times but rises again. It's not that righteous men don't fall. They rise again. And they do that through confession and repentance. William Longstaff, who was the son of a wealthy English shipowner, was financially independent, but he was very humble Very pious. 
And everybody knew him as a very godly man. And he supported Dwight L. Moody in his evangelistic efforts in England. And Longstaff, after hearing a sermon on 1 Peter 1.16, Be holy, for I am holy, became so convicted of his, his non-pursuit of holiness, his dabbling in holiness, that he began to make changes in every area of his life so that everything he did was for holiness and purity and separation from sin and for the glory of God. And he wrote one hymn and only one hymn. It is entitled, Take Time to Be Holy. Listen to the words of this hymn. If you want to know what it means to pursue holiness, listen to this hymn and listen to the words. Take time to be holy. Speak off with the Lord. Abide in Him always and feed in His word. Make friends of God's children. Help those who are weak, forgetting in nothing His blessings to seek. Take time to be holy, the world rushes on. Spend much time in secret with Jesus alone. By looking to Jesus, like him thou shalt be, thy friends and thy conduct his likeness shall see. Take time to be holy, let him be thy guide, and run not before him, whatever be tied. In joy or in sorrow, still follow the Lord. And looking to Jesus, still trust in his word. Take time to be holy, be calm in thy soul, each thought and each motive beneath his control. Thus, led by his spirit to fountains of love, thou soon shalt be fitted for service above. I don't know any better summation of what it means to pursue holiness than that hymn. There's 16 things he outlines. Take time, make an effort. Pray frequently, especially in secret. Abide in Christ. Feed on God's word. Fellowship with the saints. Serve the saints. Seek to do all for the glory of God. Don't get caught up in worldly pursuits. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Do not be impulsive or presumptuous. Follow the Lord in whatever circumstance you are in. Trust in God's word. Do not be anxious. Take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. Walk in the spirit. Do all out of love. That's what it means to pursue holiness. And I hope that every single one of us here comes to grips with our life. I hope we all realize that if we have secret sins in our life, that we have those beloved sins, that we put them to death with confession and repentance before we leave here. And that all the rest of our lives as believers, if we know the Lord, we pursue holiness, perfecting holiness in the fear of God, because this is God's will for us. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you. For your word, it's clear. We know you are a holy God. And Father, I just confess, just from studying this and preaching it twice now, that I fall short of your holiness. Father, there is no excuse for me and there is no excuse for anyone else because you've given us everything we need for life and godliness because you are such a kind and gracious God. And Father, as a congregation, we confess our sins to you. We confess our excuses. We confess our rationalization of the sins that we harbor in our heart. Father, I pray that you would never bless this congregation, that you would never exalt us or never do great things to us until we have learned to submit to your will and bless you, that we might walk in holiness. 
Father, I pray that Calvary Bible Church would be a church where people could come to worship you in spirit and truth, where they could serve, where they could grow in Christ's likeness, but never a place to come with sins hidden in their hearts, never feeling good that they have your favor when they're in high-handed rebellion against you. Father, may each of us examine our hearts. May we each repent of those areas that we fall short, and may we persevere. And when we fall, may we rise again because we have grace and forgiveness in Christ Jesus. And pray this in Christ's name. Amen.